In this episode, Kevin Fleming, CFO at ElderHQ, talks about the importance of building scalable financial systems, how financial MVPs can help you navigate periods of hypergrowth, and why good people will always fill the space. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Kevin, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, Ross, for having me. Really, really appreciate the invite. I'd love to start off, Kevin, by thinking about the, the journey that you've been on. So within your career, a long career within finance, you followed the, the very classical route of going audit into becoming an accountant, into financial control, and, and then a financial leader and CFO where, where you are today. Looking back, was it always the plan, maybe always the aspiration of yours to become a CFO and, and a leader within finance? Yeah, I mean, I think it it was, but I think that only, to be quite honest, became really clear in recent years. If I look at the earlier stages of my career where I was in audit and I tended to work in larger organizations where you were just more of a back office function, you were just processing transactions, you weren't doing much, that really didn't engage me at all. And, and I really struggled myself just thinking about how I personally fit into kind of the finance world when I felt I was a little bit more creative, entrepreneurial. I wanted to be more in the business and driving business decisions. So I went through a period, maybe about six, seven, eight years ago, where I actually got some really insightful coaching from someone through a role that I had that really helped me understand, I suppose, my my personality skill sets and how I could apply that to finance. And that really did help me change my thinking about where I wanted to go from a financial perspective. For me, I, I hate the idea of just the routine around just processing around not really kind of driving change and and being involved in helping a business grow and for me it was that it really helped me crystallize what a cfo type role that i wanted to have that i to be honest i wouldn't necessarily have thought existed 10 years ago but for me it's the cfo is and the finance function is very much front and center in the business you know finance is not a back office function that pays the bills and pays the people Finance is very much at the forefront of operations, is very much charged with business partnering and really helping the business understand the opportunities and succeed in its strategic goals. How I see finance personally is I always talk about it as a mix of the compass and the radar of a ship in that, you know, you need that vision as to what's around you, what are your obstacles, what are your challenges, what's coming towards you. And that's what finance can do by literally looking at, well, how are we seeing trends, what's happening in not just within the business, but also within the market. And then it becomes the radar to really plot what is the best course of action, you know, be it through stormy seas or actually be it through times of opportunity. It's really around finance, leveraging data insight and making sure we're driving decisions using financial data to, to optimize the returns of the business. So for me, that's what appeals to me, you know, not not sitting in a back office, but actually sitting in the business, working, you know, as a as a as a very conjoined executive team, all aligned to our strategic goals, but everybody leaning on each other and finance being very much in the conversation about how to approach things. So to be honest, it's a role that I've I've fallen into probably in the last seven, eight years that's really helped me crystallize that actually this is interesting. This is really what I want to do. And I think the eureka moment for me was about eight years ago, joining an insurance business, Simply Business, where 
that was exactly what finance had to do. It was a business that was trying to be different, do something new, but actually understanding how we do it, understanding how we drive margin pricing, understanding the decisions we make around how and where we acquire customers, whether we service them online or offline. All of this was very much driven by finance and data, supporting the business, working closely with product managers, working closely with marketing, working closely with the frontline teams to understand exactly as a collective what we can do and just be really involved in the decision-making and in the growth of the business. And for me, that was, to be honest, when I saw that role, that to me was, this is what I want to do. And that was the kind of role I really wanted to have going forward. I can understand why that the role of finance being the strategic advisor, I love the phrase compass and, and radar of the ship. I've not heard that one before. It's great. Of course, there's, an, there's another aspect as well, which is that whilst you're helping chart the direction of the company, you're also in the engine room because there's so many like core operations that, that finance needs to lead and run within a company. And they're not optional. They're, they're absolutely critical to the running of the company. So there's this like operational day-to-day like discipline and excellence that you require, but also, as you've described, strategic thinking and analysis. How do you balance up your time and your, and your team's focus on those two things? Because they can, in many cases, they can counteract each other. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think particularly for businesses like where I am at the moment, Elder, which is post-Series B, it's moving from startup to scale-up. And lots and lots of people who work in these kind of roles know that when businesses are growing, usually finance is the last to get that TLC to actually support it and have the infrastructure to, to actually to be able to deliver that growth. So it's absolutely, it's a huge challenge. And for me, I suppose how I always think about it is, It's so worthwhile investing time and effort in the infrastructure pieces. So what I I mean by that is, you know, if if I look at those high volume and, and low value from a business perspective in that it is the engine room, it has to operate. But actually, you know, it it is literally, it just has to work. It's not going to necessarily change our business thinking. It's not necessarily going to drive any decisions. It's not something the board are going to sweat about, but the basics need to work. So when I think of that, it's, you know, it's a decent financial system that can scale. And and also for us, I think what we've learned in Elder is having something that has, you know, automation. It's it's something that's becoming bigger and bigger in relation to the transactional side of, of finance. So what we've managed to do is even with a system as simple as zero, which we've had for, for a number of years, we are transitioning from it, but that provides actually a lot of automation. So things like, the purchase order process all happens automatically. The reconciliations all happen automatically. The bank transactions all happen automatically. So that infrastructure setup absolutely took time to get right. And when we when we looked at infrastructure, we looked at the financial systems. We looked at things like the chart of accounts, thinking about you know having the right level of granularity, thinking about our desire to be a business partner and therefore being able to pull reports that we can give to each of the heads and show how they're performing talk through their performance and, and basically help guide them through delivering their objectives for the year. We looked at the, you know, the controls and the processes. So we did invest a decent chunk of our time up front to, to get those basics right and allow those that infrastructure effectively just to work. You know, because if I look at things like, you know, your accounts payable, your accounts receivable, your month end, your reconciliation processes, that stuff should just work. And I think, you know, if you set your your processes and your systems and your structures up in the right way and dedicate the right amount of time, that can happen. So for us, that was very much 
this is the bread and butter of what we do. We want to have as much of our resource in the business, business partnering, actually working on the more proactive areas of how finance can help rather than have too much manpower and focus on, on the basics. So that investment in, you know, just setting up your infrastructure, setting up your systems, your controls, your processes, and optimizing for automation wherever you can has meant that actually we've, we've operated with a relatively small team and allowed more people to actually business partner, which has been hugely valuable. Again, that's a theme that comes up so often about the, the importance of automation and, and the increasing importance of it as new technologies come along uh, and offer that. And of course, that's what we're aiming to do and aspiring to do for one piece of the puzzle within Soldo. But within that, there's sometimes the, the idea of the, the Nirvana-esque situation where you've got the automation and it's running and then you can focus on strategy and business partnering and so on is a wonderful state to be at, but there's an immense amount of work to get there. So did that mean at the beginning that you either had to like put some things on ice and just focus huge attention on the on the design and build of that system? Or did you actually have to do the classical thing of fly the plane and, and build the plane at the same time, which is the cliche that often comes out of Silicon Valley? It was definitely the latter. You know, we've, we've done that. I think I think we've done that as a business at Elgar. I mean, it's I've worked in many fast-paced businesses, but my God, it's off the charts here. I mean, we obviously, you know, we're a healthcare business, and the last eighteen months for us have been incredibly interesting. I mean, it's been without doubt the most interesting two years of my career. You know, coming into a business, closing the Series C, and then all of a sudden dealing with COVID, dealing with the consequences of that, and for anybody who's reading the papers you'll know that, you know, the, the, the sourcing of care workers is, is at an all-time low right now. So we have had to be incredibly agile. I mean, the, the amount of decisions that we've had to make quickly to really pivot, to really make sure that we were doing the right things, to really make sure we were focusing on the right areas, to be able to plan for the unknown around COVID, we had to absolutely build the plane as we were flying it. I mean, I, I've never worked anywhere like it. And how we... How we manage that process is, you, you know, we we were very, very disciplined in how we prioritized our, our resources and our time. So what we would do is we would always make sure in relation to anything from an infrastructure point of view, particularly anything, you know, as a growing business, cash is king and you need to be absolutely all over that. So anything that impacted our working capital, anything like that, we dedicated 20% of our time minimum to focus on infrastructure to make sure the invoices got paid, the collections process worked, the reports were automated, so that could just happen. The other 80% was very much driven by a prioritization meeting, which was twofold, one within the team, based on what we were seeing, either from a, a challenge or an opportunity perspective, and secondly, within the business and how we could support the business. In reality, in the last two years, pretty much all of our time has been spent in the business, really helping the business understand the consequences of what we're dealing with, understand the implications and try and help the business to, you know, to, to chart a, a path out of it. And what we've done in the last six months in particular has, I, I just think it's been, it's been absolutely extraordinary. And finance has had to be a core part of that. You know, if we look at the challenges we've had within the supply market, you know, we have literally implemented a strategic project, which in any other business would be six to 12 months in scoping, designing, planning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We did it in six days, literally from start to finish. I mean, that's how quick we've had to do. And how we've done that is 
even how we model, we do things in a very agile MVP type of way. So, you know, if we, if I take some of the projects that we had where we were looking at unprecedented market conditions and what do we do? So in, in reality, you need to rip up the rule book. This is not like budgeting where it's 2%, 3%, 4% year on year. This is like literally, do we need to change how we approach things? Do we need to change how we look at things? And finance was very much the engine room of that. And how we did that was we we would do things like we would start with a financial hypothesis to the challenge at hand. We would build very simple high-level models based on half a dozen key metrics that we knew to be important. We had all the relevant people within the business, marketing, frontline, sales, clinical. And we would talk through what is it we can do. But actually finance would use what we call our sandbox modeling to basically drive the conversations in the business and say, okay, supposing we did X, and actually in these sessions, usually for finance, finance were actually pushing the business to be more aggressive from a cost point of view on the basis of, do you know what? This is really this is really cutting edge for us. But actually, when we think of the benefits of doing this, all of a sudden it becomes material. And there's been a number of projects where we've done things in this way. And to be perfectly honest, we've ended up with a completely different answer than what I would have expected. And what I mean by that is we've actually been in a position to be materially more ambitious around what we do, how we do it, and how we can generate ROI on our our capital. It's been quite extraordinary. So I would have to say, you know, typically my prioritization would be 20%, your kind of infrastructure day-to-day, your continuous improvement piece, and then your 80% split between within the within the function and within the business. But to be perfectly honest, for the last 18 months, that's that's pretty much that's pretty much gone out of the window. I think any any CFO and certainly any leader in the care sector or in a in a scale-up company in the care sector could un- understand why that's the case. And I'm fascinated by the idea of MVP, hypothesis-driven MVP models and, and approaching it in an agile fashion. Because of course, like development teams, engineering teams have been doing this for a long time now, decades, and it's starting to permeate into other parts of the business. But again, agile is often based on, a, to an extent, a test and feedback type methodology, which encourages some degree of failure. And also it encourages breaking things up into chunks. And that's really, that can be really difficult in a, in a finance context. So can you talk a little bit more about how you come up with those, like almost like those MVP type models in order to prove or disprove those hypotheses? Because it sounds easy, but actually I think in practice, it must be challenging. It's definitely difficult. I've done this kind of financial accounting in multiple businesses. And I think if you're a purely software business, it's, I was going to say it's more difficult, but actually it's probably similar, but a slightly different challenge. You know, we did this a lot in Simply Business, where there we actually won an award for being the most agile aware business in in the UK at that point in time. I mean, we did agile there absolutely to a T. And that was easier to an extent because actually what you were doing from a financial point of view is you were trying to differentiate between, okay, do I launch this product or do I launch this product? Do I discontinue this or discontinue this? Do I push the customer online or offline and it was a little bit more of a it was a little bit more of a, a slightly binary conversation binary decision here because in elder we're trying to do something that nobody else is really doing i mean we're we're really looking to revolutionize care you know for the elderly in, in the uk so it's not as if we have a pattern it's not as if we we have a base case per se in fact if anything 
it's it, we're having to think about hypothesis in a much more strategic level. You know, a good example as to how we we did this really really well was when COVID hit in March 2020. We literally sat and we went, we have no idea what this means for our business. Are we going to see all of a sudden a huge surge in customers coming to us because they realize they don't want to do hourly care because you people come in and out of the home. We don't want to go into a care home because the, the situation in the care home was just so tragic at that point in time. So are we actually going to see this where it's a, it's a significant boost to our business? Or more worryingly, are we actually going to see this is going to impact the health of our customers? And potentially we, we end up losing a whole pile of customers, sadly, through, through debt. And I don't think we could have had such a polar view as to what was going to happen in the next six, nine months. So we, we ended up in a, in a situation where we effectively built two financial hypotheses, one at either end of the scale. One saying that, well, actually through this, we would see, you know, the living care sector is going to take, uh, is going to have a real bump because people won't want hourly and won't want to live in the care home. This is going to have challenges because if we think of it from a supply perspective on carers, all of a sudden there's going to be a real surge in demand. How are we going to deal with this and operationalize this, particularly when we're having to work remotely? The other side of it was, wow, what if this literally goes the other extreme and everybody moves to a care home? And sadly, we have you know, a material portion of our customer base pass away. We basically worked on those two scenarios and, and worked through what the outcomes potentially would be, what the risks were, what we would have to do. And we set various milestones. So what we did was basically we, we ran those hypotheses as, okay, you know, if either of these are to be true, in 30 days time, we would expect this to, to happen. Either from our side, we would see, you know, a surge in demand because actually more people were coming to us, understanding all of a sudden that living care was an option. Or we would see an increase in the rate of, of deaths or customers who were having to go to nursing homes because of, because of illness. So what that then meant is after 30 days, we saw, okay, actually, in reality, this is, this is actually increasing visibility of us in the market. So we know the second hypothesis is incorrect. So let's let's work on the first one again. So what does that mean? Does that mean actually from our side, we should be pushing harder? Should we be making more people aware? Or actually, should we be playing it safe? Because potentially this is a temporary bump in the road. And in reality, normal service will resume. And we don't necessarily want to spend a huge amount of money advertising on, on the back of that. So we, we ended up, it was a little bit like, a, you know, kind of a branch network of building these little hypotheses as we navigated through through COVID. And I mean, it was it was an extraordinary period as it was for pretty much everybody, to be to be quite honest. But, you know, we would have thought at the at the outset, you know, it's, it's maybe three months and we might see nor normal service starting to return. But we ended up like, I mean, we're, we're still there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy to think we're still kind of dealing with this. But we actually ended up we ended up kind of delivering really, really well last year in relation to getting the right balance between what was happening on the top line and what was happening on the cost base. So what it did mean is, you know, even though there were variances within within the mix, as you would expect during COVID, we actually we actually hit our, our EBITDA numbers and our cash numbers, which was really good. And it was all around, you know, constantly having to build these little hypotheses around what was happening in the market. Where should we push? Where should we pull back to make sure that actually each month we were doing we were doing the right thing? So that's how we've tended to use it. We do often use it as well, you know, when we when we reach any challenges, to be quite honest, as a business, you know, we'll often go in and say, okay, what do we believe to be true? Or what could possibly be true here? You know, for example, if you change your, your margin by X, your price by Y, 
your pay by Z? What do we genuinely think could happen to the other metrics? For me, this is where, you know, that commercial element of finance is so important because all of a sudden the person who knows the numbers, the person who runs the spreadsheet that gives you the output actually understands the commercial drivers, understands what it means, you know, from a, from a customer perspective, what the price elasticity looks like from the care perspective, understanding what the, the, the correct pay rates based on region look like. Uh, from a marketing perspective, understands what's a reasonable CPA and what's a reasonable payback time. And that finance role then all of a sudden can help consolidate that information, but make sure that actually the end result is right. We are buying that media at the right price point because we know we can convert it at this rate and it's going to have this lifetime. And I think that's where finance becomes really powerful. You know, it is taking that operational expertise really helping the business challenge on hypotheses and, and driving the real financial side of those hypotheses and then helping the business work through the various scenarios and making sure we choose the right one to optimise value. You were doing so obviously in the context of the pandemic, which as you mentioned for everybody and, and every business has been challenging, but you're in, in a particularly challenging sector because some of the things that are happening to your customers and the people who are staying in, in your homes is, is literally life or death. And that, that's a very intense, emotional place to be. So given that and then everything else that's layered on, how, how are you leading your team and, and trying to, of course, like lead the company and keep people engaged in a, in a remote distributed workforce way in the midst of all of this? Because again, it sounds like a very emotional, intense environment. It absolutely is. <laughs> There's no two way about it. I mean, we, we have a, a stand up every week. We'll have one today where we have a company presentation and we'll run through kind of the usual stuff, performance, what's happening, new new hires, etc. But we'll have a section which is all around the care of the week, for example. And it's a story around someone who works, who, who's one of our carers who has gone above and beyond, you know, in, in difficult times. And some of the stories there, they're tough to read, you know, I mean, they're hugely positive because you see, you know, we often hear about, oh, my mom, she, you know, she's really been fading. She was having a terrible time. And all of a sudden we find a great care for them. And there's a picture of them feeding the ducks and sitting in the pub, having a GNT and having their life back and, and feeling like they've, they've, they've kind of been reborn in that sense in like the very extreme circumstances. But, but I also think that is, that, that makes our mission so powerful. You know, I think for me, this is without doubt the toughest role that we've had, that I've ever had. You know, somebody's is market conditions, somebody's just, you know, the, the pace of growth and the opportunity and trying to keep up with that. But my God, when you when you hear the customers and the difference that we make and you hear the carers even and the difference that we make, it just makes it so worthwhile. And I think for me, that feeds down into my team. You know, quite regularly I'll, I'll stand, you know, we have our team meetings or I'll stand up in front of the business. And, you know, I would quite regularly say, look, this is hard. What we are doing is hard because, well, that's why nobody else has done it. So we've got to, we've got to be resilient. You know, we've got to be the people who really, really believe in our mission, really, really believe we are here to reinvent what it means to age. And we're going to have to bust a gut to get there. And you know what? It's going to be tough and there's going to be bumps in the road, but we're in this together. And for me, I think, it's that culture that we see within the business. Pete, our founder, is hugely, hugely inspirational. He's probably the best CEO I've worked with. I mean, he's bright, he's articulate, he's engaging, he's full of energy. What I like about it is he talks about us as a sports team. 
we're all on the one team. Everybody's got a different position to play, but you know what? All our roles are relevant. And for me, what I find really interesting is when I go and I sit on the phones and I hear what our frontline teams have to deal with, because often, you know, people call us in crisis. Mum's had a fall, dad's had a stroke. And I hear how they have to manage that relationship. It just really hits home. There's not a single role in this business that isn't a fundamental and important part of that team. And that energy, you know, it's all around the business. And I have to say it's really, really vibrant in finance. Because what I love about finance, because we have that mentality that we are in the business, and I mean that for every single one of the finance team. It's not just me. It's not just FP&A. It is like literally, it is the people who are in charge of collections and invoices. They're the people who reach out into the business and actually say, how can we help sort this? Have you thought about this? Why isn't this working? Anybody can talk to anybody. I mean, I've, I've just been going through, there's something very, very exciting we're about to launch. And there's a, a real key piece of marketing uh, content that I was looking at last night, which is absolutely awesome. And it was Laura in our AP department who suggested it to the marketing department. And it is just brilliant. And that's that's the culture we have. So I, I think for us, I, to be honest, I think I think we're lucky in the sense that even working remotely, even working through difficult times, because we're doing this for our customers, because we're doing this for our carers, because this is a real mission-led business, I think that really is the glue that, that holds us together. What you're describing sounds like all the hallmarks of ownership that people have and take ownership for the direction of the company and ultimately the experience for your customers or the, the people in your care. Absolutely. You know, I think there's absolute ownership. I think how we tend to operate as, as a business as well is everybody feels empowered. So they have ownership of their own role. They know exactly what it is they need to do. They know exactly that if they feel like they can expand, improve, suggest changes, you know, not even necessarily just in their own, you know, department, that they they have that opportunity. And what I love is Seb, our COO who joined recently, has a phrase called fill the space, that good people fill the space. And man, you, you, just the difference when you have those people who have that mentality and who feel who have that authority to fill the space is amazing. And I think for us, if I talk about how how we are efficient, how we are successful, how we're able to successfully business partner. I think it is around having people who, who just have that mentality and who just execute in that way. I love that expression, fill the space. Immediately upon you saying it, like there's certain faces that pop into my mind of people from our team who do exactly that. It's a, there's a proactivity and entrepreneurial mindset that I think that is very inherent in the people that do fill those spaces. I totally agree. And I always say hands up, you know, to anybody who comes into my team. Look, do you know what? There's going to be blockers in relation to you being successful. Nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be me just on the basis of you feel like you need to speak to me or you need to get signed off or you need to have counsel or whatever it might be. But what I do is through the entire process, I make sure that there's clarity around when is it do you have to put your hands up and tap me on the shoulder? Or when is it can you just literally get on with it and, and tell me when it's done? And I think we've been really, really successful on that. You know, if I look at what we've achieved within finance in the last nine months, we've just gone through kind of our, our half year review cycle. And I look at how much we've progressed as a function and it is it's a lot more than we should have, 
to be quite honest. You know, if you look at the challenges that we faced, if you look at, you know, it's a lean team, what we have delivered has been extraordinary. And that is because people have been very clear on their objectives, very clear on their lines of responsibilities, but encouraged to drive continuous improvement, encouraged to challenge other areas of the business and encouraged to, you know, kind of work with that fill the space mentality. And it has been, it has been hugely successful. On that point, one thing that I, I wanted to explore with you was typically, again, when you're, when you're working on company level stuff, macro level analysis, you're doing budgeting, planning and so on, it's data driven and it's data led. And there are tough decisions to be made because the whole purpose of it is prioritization and resource allocation and so on. But in that, sometimes there can come a, a harshness, you know, like it's like, you know, the my way or the highway, I know what's truth because part of what you meant to do is bring that truth. And I've certainly made that mistake in the past where I believe I know the data. And then because I know the data, there's a degree of like empathy that, that fades away and you it becomes a much harder business decision. But when you're describing your culture, it sounds like the antithesis of that, a, a company culture where there's a great degree of collaboration, empathy, people filling the space. How do those two balance up with like making the tough decisions, which finance constantly either has to do or guides the executive team on so they can do it, but with that type of collaborative fill the space empathy that seems to be inherent in your culture? It's taken time to get to that working well, to, to be quite honest. I think how we've got there is, first of all, everybody feels like they have their part to play, that their budget matters, that it's all part of one collective, that there isn't the idea of this is my budget, this is for me, this is all I care about. This is very much about us coming together as a collective. So what I love about when we look at the budgeting process is I've often had conversations where, for example, I'm talking to the marketing team and the marketing team have, have heard that we've said no to somebody else because of a particular spend. And the marketing team say, sorry, I think that is fundamentally wrong because actually from what we've seen, the customers love it. You know, it does drive brand awareness. It's just a really nice thing to do. So I propose I would like to give you some of my budget to effectively fund that. So we're, we're really, really lucky in relation to that culture that actually there is a sense of true collaboration, true cross-functional working, that we are working as a unit to, to a shared goal. That makes life an awful lot easier. I think what's often interesting for us in finance is we in Elder are very much a data-led, data-driven business. But one of the things I really encourage anyone within the finance team to do is to think outside of the spreadsheet. Because I think what often happens is finance, you know, will often go in and say, okay, great, that's your first cut of the budget, fantastic. I'm literally just going to knock 20% off everything and let's have a fight and, and see where we get to. And from my experience, you know, these are these are interesting exercises and often these are necessary, but they're just so arbitrary because you, you, you have two different personalities. You've got personality A, who knows it's going to happen, who's going to bake it in. Personality B, who goes, money's tight, so I'm going to be as lean as I can. So you end up basically disproportionately impacting person B. So for me, what I always want to make sure of is, look, the data is king. Absolutely. There's no two ways about it. But also it's important to step away from the spreadsheets and actually say, okay, we've done everything, but actually does this pass the sniff test? You know, if we look at this, if we look at the cost base, if we look at, you know, particularly when we look at the unit economics, if I see my unit economics going this way with this resources, does that actually make sense? If something is improving, what can I point to that I have confidence is driving that behaviors or is driving that results? 
So interestingly for me, I think finance has a stewardship role to play as well. We're not just the the hard ass, you know, we're gonna we're gonna cut your costs kind of thing. We also have to make sure that actually there is cohesion across anything like a budget, that there's reality around how we're allocating resources, that there's there's fairness. You know, for us we see everything. So we're in a we're in a decent place to be able to challenge one role or one budget over another. But for for me, it, you know, I do feel like it's really important to step away from the spreadsheet, you know, at these times and actually sense check, you know, does this does this actually work? And I think the biggest learning for me on this was working in an insurance business where it was, you know, probably half online, half offline, but the cost base was seventy percent this this contact center. So you run the spreadsheet. Spreadsheet does absolute no brainer. Yeah, definitely shut down the contact center. It's a waste. It's it's just it doesn't make any sense. But then you go to the contact center and you listen on the phones and you realize, hang on a minute, these are people who are calling us because they don't they don't trust buying insurance online. They assume they're going to click the wrong button. They're going to put the wrong cover in. When they have a claim, they're not going to get paid. So they're calling us. And what was what what we found was happening was first of all we were seeing this was driving very high conversion compared to online at a higher premium because we could make sure first of all that the level of cover is right nine times out of ten you know people would play around with the cover and they would look to push it as low as possible to to reduce price it also meant we had an opportunity to sell ancillary products and finally it built a relationship so that when it came to you know kind of renewal time they felt like they knew us and and they could come back so. The spreadsheet would have said shut it down, but when we actually went, we we actually got into the business and actually saw what was happening and stress tested it. We actually put more investment into the contact center, and it was it was the best decision we made. So I, I do feel data is king, absolutely, but I think there is that other element, that other sense check. Does it, does it pass the sniff test when you actually look to do this in the business? Are we confident that? the elements that are not on the spreadsheet have been factored into our decision. And I think for, for me, that's a really important role within, within finance at a senior level. And you can sense why the, the automation that you spoke about earlier on, the idea of having an infrastructure where, where a lot of things just work to steal the uh, Steve Jobs system, is so important because it liberates you to be able to spend time in, in that case in the contact centre and learning about the business and seeing, seeing the, the qualitative side of things going beyond the analytics. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And so, Kevin, perhaps as a last question, I would love to ask our guests about advice perhaps for other CFOs or even aspiring CFOs, given where you are, what you've been through, and also the change that you, and you've alluded to that, the change in the demands of a CFO in, in today's world. What advice would you have to others who are looking to develop into that role? I suppose if I look back for me, I think the key is actually as a finance leader, understand the business. Because I think if you understand how marketing works, if you understand how people speak to your customers on the phone, if you understand how your product is assembled, if you understand all those bits, that allows you to have a much richer understanding as to what the economic drivers are of the business. And actually, when you come to look at performance, you know, these things start to make more sense. You start to see through, you start to see through just purely the numbers and actually understand the levers in reality that are driving business performance. For me, I would definitely say to to anyone, get on the phones, stand on the assembly line, go to the contact centers, really get into the business and, and properly understand it. You know, it, it helps you understand the metrics and builds relationships with people. And it's really important for finance people to have that relationship because one of the reasons we work really well here is it's open. 
it's frank, it's honest, it's respectful. It's not always professional. There's often a bit of name calling, but nothing, nothing untoward there. But it's it's about building that relationship as well as understanding the business is is really is really really important. What that then allows you to do is ensure that the goals set within the business are absolutely aligned, and how we are very diligent within Elder is to make sure that we have six or seven what we would call north stars. These are like our most important metrics, and these metrics spread across most of the business. But what we make sure of is every single metric lines up to that metric and make sure that actually a good performance in those metrics means that your North Stars are going in the right way. So making sure across the business that those metrics are really, really clear, we're able to report on them. And we're also very clear on what good looks like. And, you know, when I started here at Alder, I was asked to do a report on the, the management accounts and give my views of the business. And I, I literally had a page where it said, I have no idea because we had 20 pages of graphs, charts, numbers, but no indication as to what good looks like and were we doing better than planned or worse than planned. So having that is important and having that aligned, not just across the oper operational metrics, but actually also having it aligned from what the board look at to what the business looks at. So you've got absolute alignment top to bottom and across the business is really, really key. The other three quick points I would I would probably pick would be recruit the person you need for the future, not the one you need now. You will you will get 10x the ROI having someone coming in who's is better than you think you need. They will take more off your plate. They will grow themselves. They will fill the space in that role. I would always plan well, and by that planning is all around looking ahead. You know, and I think that's where finance in the old days was bad. If it's not in the budget, it's not happening kind of thing. Whereas actually for us, we should be saying, okay, it's not in the budget. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? If it's a bad thing, what do we do? Where do we reallocate from? Do we need to position ourselves differently? Do we need to do something new? That should be driven by finance. Finance should definitely be driving that agility. And then the last one for me, which having gone through multiple fundraisers is, is really, really key, will be if you're in a funding, if you're pre-funding, set your budget and hit your targets. I think, you know, Proving that you have the ability to execute on your numbers when you're looking for money is disproportionately powerful. If you're on track, v if you're off track, is probably four times the headache from a, from a diligence perspective. So how we think about target setting is we will say these are our targets for the year, but we may set stretch targets for others within the business where we feel there's opportunity. But in relation to what you communicate to the board, what you communicate to your investors, definitely set the right targets and knock it out of the park. And I think that, that that is a very timely note to finish on. Uh, having just gone through a CDC as well, it's all though, the point on uh, hitting on or exceeding your budget and lead up and through that, I I empathise with massively. That was a huge focus for us. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Some amazing insights there. For any of the listeners that wanted to go and connect with you or, or follow what you're doing online, where's the best place for them to do that? I would say the easiest thing to do is if they want to connect with me on LinkedIn initially, very happy to do that and very happy for to share any experiences or to have a coffee or a chat. I was in this boat myself and often having kind of wise old gray haired uh, wisdom can, can be useful. So very, very happy to connect with anyone who wants to. Great. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Thanks, William Ross. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, 
visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.